0: Section twenty four of The Rainbow. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Rainbow by D. H. Lawrence, Chapter Eight, Part Two. Anna continued in her violent trance of motherhood. Always busy, often harassed, but always contained in her trance of motherhood. She seemed to exist in her own violent fruitfulness, and it was as if the sun shone tropically on her. Her color was bright, her eyes full of fecund gloom. Her brown hair tumbled loosely over her ears. She had a look of richness. No responsibility, no sense of duty troubled her. The outside public life was less than nothing to her, really. Horace when at twenty-six, he found himself father of four children with a wife who lived intrinsically like ruddiest lilies of the field, he let the way of responsibility press on him and drag him. It was then that his child Ursula strove to be with him. She was with him even as a babe of four, when he was irritable and shouted and made the household unhappy. She suffered from his shouting. But somehow it was not really him. She wanted it to be over, she wanted to resume her normal connection with him. When he was disagreeable, the child echoed to the crying of some need in him, and she responded blindly. Her heart followed him as if he had some tie with her, and some love which he could not deliver. Her heart followed him persistently in its love. But there was the dim, childish sense of her own smallness, any inadequacy, a fatal sense of worthlessness. She could not do anything. She was not enough. She could not be important to him. Thus knowledge deadened her from the first. Still, she sat towards him like a quivering needle. All her life was directed by her awareness of him, her wakefulness to his being, and she was against her mother. Her father was the dawn wherein her consciousness woke up, but for him she might have gone on like the other children Gudrun, teresa and catherine one with the flowers and insects and playing things having no existence apart from the concrete object of her attention but her father came too near to her the clasp of his hands and the power of his breast woke her up almost in pain from the transient unconsciousness of childhood wide-eyed unseen she was awake before she knew how to see she was wakened too soon too soon the call had come to her when she was a small baby and her father held her close to his breast. Her sleep-living heart was beating into wakefulness by the striving of his bigger heart, by his clasping her to his body from love and for fulfillment, asking as a magnet must always ask. From her The response was struggled dimly, vaguely into being. The children were dressed roughly for the country. When she was little, Ursula pattered about in little wooden clogs, a blue overall over her thick red dress, a red shawl crossed on her breast and tied behind again. So she ran with her father to the garden. The household rose early. He was out digging by six o'clock in the morning. He went to his work at half past eight, and Ursula was usually in the garden with him, though not near at hand. At Easter time one year, she helped him to set potatoes. It was the first time she had ever helped him. The occasion remained as a picture, one of her earliest memories. They had gone out soon after dawn. A cold wind was blowing. He had his old trousers tucked into his boots. He wore no coat nor waistcoat. His shirt, sleeves fluttered in the wind. His face was ruddy and intent, in a kind of sleep. When he was at work, he neither heard nor saw. A long, thin man, looking still a youth, with a line of black mustache above his thick mouth, and his fine hair blown on his forehead, he worked away at the earth in the gray first light alone. His solitariness drew the child like a spell. The wind came chill over the dark green fields. Ursula ran up, and watched him push the setting peg in at one side of his ready earth, stride across and push it in the other side, pulling the line taut and clear upon the clods intervening. Then, with a sharp cutting noise, the bright spade came towards her, cutting a grip into the new soft earth. He struck his spade upright and straightened himself. Do you want to help me? he said. She looked up at him from out of her little woolen bonnet. "Eh," he said, you can put some taters in for me. Look like that, these little spritz standing up so much apart, you see. And stooping down, he quickly, surely placed the stri- stripped potatoes in the soft grip where they rested separate and pathetic on the heavy cold earth. He gave her a little basket of potatoes and strolled himself to the other end of the line. She saw him stooping, working towards her. She was excited and unused. She put in one potato, then rearranged it to make it sit nicely. Some of the sprits were broken. And she was afraid. The responsibility excited her like a string tying her up. She could not help looking with dread at the string buried under the hip back soil. Her father was working nearer, stooping, working nearer. She was overcome by her responsibility. She put potatoes quickly into the cold earth he came near not so close he said stooping over her potatoes taking some out and rearranging the others she stood by with the painful terrified helplessness of childhood he was so unseeing and confident She wanted to do the thing, and yet she could not. She stood by, looking on, her little blue overall fluttering in the wind, her red, woollen ends of her shawl blowing gustily. Then he went down the road relentlessly, turning the potatoes in with his sharp spade cuts. He took no notice of her, only worked on. He had another world from hers. She stood helplessly stranded of his world. He continued his work. She knew she could not help him. A little bit forlorn, at last she turned away and ran down the garden away from him as fast as she could go away from him to forget him and his work he missed her presence her face in her red woolen bonnet her blue overall fluttering she ran to where a little water ran trickling between grass and stones that she loved when he came by he said to her you didn't help me much the child looked at him dumbly already her heart was heavy because of her own disappointment her mouth was dumb and pathetic He did not notice he went his way. And she played on because of her disappointment persisting even the more in her play. She dreaded work because she could not do it as he did it. He was conscious of the great breach between them. She knew she had no power. The grown-up power to work deliberately was a mystery to her. He would smash into her sensitive child's world destructively. Her mother was lenient, careless. The children played about as they would all day. Earthla was thoughtless. Why should she remember things? If across the garden she saw the hedge had budded, and if she wanted these greeny-pink, tiny buds for bread and cheese to play a tea part with, over she went for them. Then suddenly, perhaps the next day, her soul would almost start out of her body as her father turned on her, shouting, Who's been trampling and dancing across where I've just sowed seed? I know it's you, nuisance. Can you find nowhere else to walk but just over my seed beds? But it's like you. This is no heed but to follow your own greedy nose. It had shocked him in his intent world to see the zigzagging lines of deep little footprints across his work. The child was infinitely more shocked. Her vulnerable little soul was flayed and trampled. Why were the footprints there? She had not wanted to make them. She stood Dazzled with pain and shame and unreality, her soul, her consciousness, seemed to die away. She became shut off and senseless, a little fixed creature whose soul had gone hard and unresponsive. The sense of her own unreality hardened her like a frost. She cared no longer. At the sight of her face, shut and superior with self-asserting indifference, made a flame of rage go over him. He wanted to break her. I'll break your obstinate little face, he said through shut teeth, lifting his hand. The child did not alter in the least. The look of indifference, complete glancing indifference, as if nothing but herself existed to her, remained fixed. Yet, far away in her, the sobs were tearing her soul. And when he had gone, she would go and creep under the parlor sofa, and lie clinched in the silent hidden misery of childhood when she crawled out after an hour or so she went rather stiffly to play she willed to forget she cut off her childish soul from memory so that the pain and the insult should not be real she asserted herself only there was not nothing in the world but her own self. So, very soon, she came to believe in the outward malevolence that was against her. And very early, she learned that even her adored father was part of this malevolence. And very early, she learned to harden her soul in resistance and denial of all that was outside her, harden herself upon her own being. She never felt sorry for what she had done. She never forgave those who had made her guilty. If he had said to her, Why, Ursula, did you trample my carefully made bed that would have hurt her to the quick and she would have done anything for him but she was always tormented by the unreality of outside things the earth was to walk on why must she avoid a certain patch just because it was called a seedbed, it was the earth to walk on. This was her instinctive assumption. And when he bullied her, she became hard, cut herself off from all connection, lived in the little separate world of her own violent will. As she grew older, five, six, seven, The connection between her and her father was even stronger. It was always straining to break. She was always relapsing on her own violent will into her own separate world of herself. This made him grind his teeth with bitterness, for he still wanted her. But she could harden herself into her own self's universe impregnable. He was very fond of swimming, and in warm weather would take her down to the canal, to a silent place or to a big pond or reservoir, to bathe. He would take her on his back as he went swimming, and she clung close feeling his strong movement under her so strong as if it would uphold all the world then he taught her to swim she was a fearless little thing when he dared her and he had a curious craving to frighten her to see what she would do with him he said Would she ride on his back whilst he jumped off the canal bridge down the water beneath? She would. He loved to feel the naked child clinging on to his shoulders. There was a curious fight between their two wills. He mounted the parapet of the canal bridge. The water was a long way down. But the child had a deliberate will set upon his. She had herself fixed to him. He leapt, and down they went. The crash of the water as they went under struck through the child's small body with a sort of unconsciousness. But she remained fixed. And when they came up again, and when they went to the bank, and when they sat on the grass side by side, he laughed and said it was fine. And the dark, dilated eyes of the child looked at him wonderingly, darkly, wondering from the shock, yet reserved and unfaithful so he left almost with a sob. In a moment she was clinging safely on his back again, and he was swimming in deep water. She was used to his nakedness and to her mother's nakedness ever since she was born. They were clinging to each other and making up to each other for the strangled blow that had been struck at them yet still on other days he would leap again with her from the bridge daringly almost weakly till at length as he leapt once she dropped forward onto his head and nearly broke his neck so that they fell into the water in a heap and fought for a few moments with death. He saved her and sat on the bank quivering, but his eyes were full of the blackness of death. It was as if death had cut between their two lives and separated them. Still, They were not separate. There was this curious, taunting intimacy between them. When the fair came, she wanted to go in the swing boats. He took her, and standing up in the boat, holding on to the irons, began to drive higher imperiously higher the child clung fast on her seat do you want to go any higher he said to her as she laughed with her mouth her eyes wide and dilatated they were rushing through the air yes she said feeling as if she would turn into vapor Loose hold of everything and melt away The boat swung far up, then down like a stone, only to be caught sickeningly up again. Any higher, he called, looking at her over his shoulder, his face evil and beautiful to her. She laughed with white lips. She sent the swing boat sweeping through the air in a great semicircle, Till it jerked and swayed at the high horizontal. The child clung on pale, her eyes fixed on him. People below were calling. The jerk at the top had almost shaken them both out. He had done what he could and he was attracting censure. He sat down. He let the swing boat swing itself out. People in the crowd cried shame on him as he came out of the swing boat. He laughed. The child clung to his hand pale and mute. In a while she was violently sick. He gave her lemonade and she gulped a little. Don't tell your mother you've been sick, he said. There was no need to ask that. When she got home, the child crept away under the parlor sofa like a sick little animal and was a long time before she crawled out. But Anna got to know of his this escapade and was passionately angry and contemptuous of him. His golden-brown eyes glittered, and he had a strange, cruel little smile. And as the child watched him for the first time in her life, a disillusion came over her. Something cold and isolating. She went over to her mother. Her soul was dead towards him. It made her sick. Still, she forgot and continued to love him, but ever more coldly. He was at this time, when he was about 28 years old, strange and violent in his being, sensual. He acquired some power over Anna, over everybody he came into contact with, with after a long bout of hostility Anna at last closed with him she had now four children all girls for seven years she had been absorbed in wifehood and motherhood for years he had gone on beside her never really encroaching upon her. Then gradually another self seemed to assert its being within him. He was still silent and separate, but she could feel him all the while coming near upon her, as if his breast and his body were threatening her, and he was always coming closer. Gradually he became indifferent of responsibility. He would do what pleased him, and no more. He began to go away from home. He went to Nottingham on Saturdays, always alone, to the football match, to the music hall, and all the time he was watching in redness. He never cared to drink. But with his hard golden brown eyes, so keen seeing with their tiny black pupils, he watched all the people, everything that happened, and he waited. In the empire one evening he sat next to two girls. He was aware of the one beside him. She was rather small, common with a fresh complexion and an upper lip that lifted from her teeth, so that when she was not conscious, her mouth was slightly open and her lips pressed outwards in a kind of blind appeal. She was strongly aware of the man next to her, so that all her body was still, very still. Her face watched the stage. Her arms went down into her lap, very self-conscious and still. A gleam lit up in him. Should he begin with her? Should he begin with her to leave the other, the unadmitted life of his desire? Why not? He had always been so good. Save for his wife, he was a virgin. And why when all women were different? Why when he would only live once? He wanted the other life. His own life was barren, not enough. He wanted the other. Her open mouth, showing the small irregular white teeth, appealed to him. It was open and ready it was so vulnerable why should he not go in and enjoy what was there the slim arm that went down so still and motionless to the lap it was pretty she would be small he would be able almost to hold her in his two hands she would be small almost like a child and pretty Her childishness witted him keenly. She would be helpless between his hands. That was the best turn we've had, he said to her, leaning over as he clapped his hands. He felt strong and unshakable in himself, set over against all the world. His soul was keen and watchful, glittering with a kind of amusement. He was perfectly self-contained. He was himself, the absolute. The rest of the world was the object that should contribute to his being. The girl started, turned around, Her eyes lit up with an almost painful flash of a smile. The color came deeply in her cheeks. Yes, it was, she said quite meaninglessly. She covered her rather prominent teeth with her lips. Then she sat looking straight before her, seeing nothing only conscious of the color burning in her cheeks. It pricked him with a pleasant sensation. His veins and his nerves attended to her. She was so young and palpitating. It's not such a good program as last week's, he said. Again, she half turned her face to him and her clear, bright eyes, bright like shallow water, filled with light, frightened, yet involuntarily lightening and shaking with response. Oh, isn't it? I wasn't able to come last week. He noted the common accent. It pleased him. He knew what class she came of. Probably she was a warehouse lass. He was glad she was a common girl. He proceeded to tell her about the last week's program. She answered at random very confusedly. The color burned in her cheek. Yet she always answered him. The girl on the other side sat remotely obviously silent he ignored her all his address was for his own girl with her bright shallow eyes and her vulnerably open mouth the talk went on meaningless and random on her part quite deliberate and purposive on his It was a pleasure to him to make this conversation, an activity pleasant as a fine game of chance and skill. He was very quiet and pleasant humored, but so full of strength. She fluttered beside his stead pressure of warmth and his surety. End of Section 24